He was perhaps the most marginalized vice president in the history of the Republic, and that was saying a lot. The man's approval rating in his home state of California was below 30%. A lot of things could have been ignored, but not that number. The party elders pulled him aside and told him it was the end of the road. Having been confronted with his limits and deficiencies for the last three years, the man did not put up a fight. Ross, in the meantime, worked feverishly behind the scenes. He was well-connected on Wall Street, regarded highly by his old club, the U.S. Senate, and savvy enough to know not to throw his hat in the ring too early. He waited until New Hampshire when Alexander walked away as the clear frontrunner. Then he began networking, pushing the idea that the young governor needed a running mate who had some gravitas in the national security arena. He sent his surrogates to lobby on his behalf. He personally wined and dined the party's big-money people, and he carefully began to court the handsome young governor from Georgia. Everything fell into place exactly as Ross had wished. When he took the stage at the National Convention, the place erupted. They hit the ground with a bounce and an eight-point lead. That had been three months ago, the pinnacle, the apogee of the campaign. Since then, they'd been bleeding like a stuck pig. With two weeks until Election Day, they trailed their opponents by three points, and Ross was feeling the pressure. Their pollsters kept coming back with the same problem. Voters perceived the pair as weaker than their opponents on national security. This was where Ross was supposed to step in and fill the breach. But how could he have known the president would leave them high and dry? The man had abandoned them in their hour of need. Yes, he had endorsed them. But what in the hell else was he going to do? Endorse the Republican ticket? Campaigning on their behalf was assumed. It was all part of the battle plan. He would help them raise the millions of dollars it would take to win the TV ad race. He would step in and use that bully pulpit to announce his confidence in the young candidate and his seasoned running mate. But all they got was silence and a cold shoulder. The press was told that the president's disease was taking a toll on him, and he simply didn't have the energy to campaign. His obligation was to his office and the American people. Ross believed the excuse for a few days, and then reality set in. Word had gotten back to him through two solid sources that the president had a real problem with the ticket. He was offended that no one had bothered to consult him as to who Alexander should pick as a running mate. Beyond that, the president made it clear that he considered Ross the wrong choice. The words had stung Ross to the core, but he had since written them off as the musings of a bitter old man at the end of his journey. True to his never-quit attitude, Ross redoubled his efforts and stayed positive. This morning, however, he was feeling a sense of dread— There were only two weeks left, and the Poles could move only so far in such a short period of time. They needed a real October surprise to put them over the top, and then Ross would take great pride in sticking it in the President's face on Inauguration Day. As the motorcade slowed, the lead vehicles began peeling off. Ross looked through the tinted bulletproof window at the media who had gathered in front of the mansion— The heavy black iron gate opened, and the two limousines pulled into the narrow circular drive. Dumbarton Oaks was a 22-acre estate in Georgetown that was noteworthy for hosting a conference in 1944 that led to the formation of the United Nations. 
It was Ross's idea that they host a national security conference at the estate and bring in the greatest minds to discuss the issues that threatened the country. A former chairman of the Joint Chiefs was on hand, as well as two former secretaries of state, a former secretary of defense, several retired CIA directors, a few lesser-known generals, and a smattering of Middle Eastern experts and Muslim clerics from around the world. After the three-hour event, they were to head to the vice president's house at the Naval Observatory. The vice president was set to host a diplomatic reception on their behalf. All of the important ambassadors would be there, and both Ross and Alexander would present them with their vision for security, peace, and prosperity in the 21st century. The event should have been held at the White House, but they had been denied. The entire election, hell, his entire political career, was going to come down to this one afternoon. If he believed in God, he would have said a prayer. But he didn't, so he cursed the president instead. The limo came to a stop, and Ross looked his yammering campaign manager in the eye for the first time in five minutes. Still, Ross checked to make sure his tie was straight. Shut up. You're giving me a headache. With that, Ross stepped from the back of the limo. He buttoned his suit coat with one hand and waved to the reporters and photographers with the other. He was about to comment on how beautiful a day it was when the whole gaggle swung their lenses and microphones away from him. Ross turned to see the tanned and slender legs of Gillian Rothbart Alexander emerge from the other limousine. The press loved her. They called her America's Diana. Her likability number was in the seventies, far higher than either of the candidates. She was a stunning beauty in every conceivable way. She was five foot nine, with shoulder-length blonde hair and a body to die for. She'd been raised among the super-elite, schooled in Switzerland and then Brown, where her father had gone. The family's fortune was in real estate and lots of it. New York and Florida was where they had made their killing. There were homes in Paris, Manhattan, and Palm Springs. At thirty-six, Gillian was one of those rare women who got better with age. She drew men into her orbit without having to bat an eye or flash a smile. She was gorgeous, classy, and hot all at the same time. Ross had thought about taking a run at her on more than one occasion. She was no vestal virgin, that was for sure, but a real opportunity never presented itself. Josh Alexander joined his wife, and the flashes erupted once again. He was six-one with black hair and the tanned skin of a low-handicapped golfer. He was polished in that southern televangelist sort of way. His suits were always a bit shinier than everyone else's, his hair a bit longish and perfectly styled, and his teeth a few shades too white. This appearance, of course, fit the master plan to split the southern Christian vote, and the polling numbers told them it had worked. A little too well, in fact. Their real problem now lay with the base. They felt betrayed, and were threatening to stay home on election day. Ross watched the presidential candidate and his wife pose for the cameras. They stood there smiling, those same forced smiles that Ross had grown to hate. Even so, he kept his own fake smile going and acted like he was admiring the sheer beauty of the super-couple. Ross's wife was back in Connecticut at the bedside of their daughter, who was about to give birth to their first grandchild at any moment. It was just as well. She had grown sick of the campaign. No joy being outshined at every step by a woman twenty years her junior. 
Alexander finally left his wife's side and came over to Ross. He stuck out his right hand and clapped Ross on the shoulder with his left. How you feeling today, Mr. Vice President? Good, Mr. President. Ross strained to keep the smile on his face. Calling each other President and Vice President had been Alexander's idea. The week after the convention, when they'd had their eight-point lead, it had been fun. Now it just seemed delusional and childish. Ross still thought they had a chance. He just didn't think the power of positive thinking was what was going to put them over the top. Five key states were up for grabs. The negative ads were in the can, and if they didn't shrink the gap in the polls by Monday morning, things were going to get real ugly. Ross knew they'd be using those ads against their opponents. It was just a question of whether they started this week or the following. This was going to be a street fight, right to the bitter end. Four blocks away, Gavrilo Gazic paid for his espresso with cash and was careful to keep the brim of his red Washington Nationals baseball hat tilted down so that the security camera mounted above the teller couldn't get a good shot of him. He was also wearing sunglasses to help conceal his features. It was a sunny fall morning in Georgetown, and the killer fit in perfectly. Gazic preferred to operate in Africa, that was where he had made a name for himself after years of training in his war-torn homeland of Bosnia. The corrupt politicians and generals of the subcontinent made it an extremely target-rich environment. The billions in aid that were simply thrown at the impoverished region by foreign governments and international relief organizations provided an extra incentive for them to slaughter each other. The prevalence of graft from the national level all the way down to the smallest village was astounding. Of every dollar in aid.